We're living in a society now where more wealth goes to landlords than to workers. And so what that means is that you have this kind of ever remote elite group of people passing their wealth down through the generations. Now, to me, like that is what we need to talk about. That's the issue. The point about class politics is this. There are groups in societies that don't just have different interests, they have conflicting interests. You know, when people say, oh, you're pitting people against each other, no, that's what our society does already. Our society is divisive. That's Owen Jones and Ellie Mayo Hagen, my guests here on the third and final episode. On our journey so far, we've talked about why class is still relevant and what the class system looks like today. And we've talked about the impact class still has on life in Britain, how it still defines our life outcomes, with very few of us born to working class parents making it into the top professions. This week, we're getting political. Or political. My name is Faiza Shaheen. Stay with us. Ordinary working class families. Ordinary working class people. Where do I stand on Brexit? Well, here it goes. The working class have spoke, and I'm one of them, and I'm with them. In the aftermath of the Brexit vote, we heard that it was the white working class that led us to divorce the rest of the EU. We've already busted that myth. But then the 2017 general election saw a traditional class-based voting shift with no clear political winners, despite considerable efforts to win over the working class vote. So what role does class really play in our politics? The fire at Grenfell Tower also had clear class connotations, with some local residents saying they thought their economic status at least partly explained why the council ignored their calls for better safety standards. I went to Kensington to host an event on the wider meaning of the Grenfell disaster. Here's Yvette Williams, a coordinator for Justice for Grenfell. They've just always treated us with contempt. The north, of, the north of the borough has always been treated with contempt by the local authority. I think I do think it's a class thing. I mean, I moved here 33 years ago. The reason why I ended up in Notting Hill is because no one really wanted to live here. Um, do you know what I mean? I came, I stayed with a friend, I squatted. I, do you know what I mean? It was just, they just thought of us as a bunch of vagabonds. So, you know, we're classed as poor. Well, actually, there's homeowners, or there were homeowners in Grenfell Tower, yeah. the leaseholders in there. Uh, we're not poor, we're people, we get up and we go to work. Um, you know, we look after our homes. We, you know, we're just working class people. So it is, I think, about changing the whole discourse around that. They want to change the landscape. So they've come here to buy properties because they will get maximum profit off it. If you start using different words, in the media and say what you mean, not what they tell you, I think that will become everyday language. So like what? So replace regeneration with class cleansing. Okay, don't use their words, find your own vocabulary and say what is happening on the tin. Given that the class system is alive and well, what should politicians be doing to try and get us to a better place? In this episode, I'm talking to journalists Owen Jones and Ellie Mayo Hagen. We've actually got our own podcast, haven't we? So it's like... Oh, you're going to slip in a little <laughs> like plug in. certainly plug that. Is it called Agitpod? It's called Agitpod. It is called Agitpod. On iTunes. Anyone can download it across a variety of different mediums. 
<laughs> and you're also going to plug this podcast. You're the same thing. Um, no, we'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> what politics is about for me in terms of how I see politics is whose side are you on? Are you on the side of the real wealth creators, working people who, through the hard graft, through hand or brain, create the wealth in society, whether it be bringing up the next generation of people who uh, our society depends on, teachers, uh, whether it be people who work in offices or call centres or supermarkets or factories. And that is the vast majority of society. Now, the left's argument is we can build a society that fulfills the full potential of working class people, the people who keep society ticking day after day. Um, at, uh, the, the, the difficulties we've come up against are anger being redirected um uh, away from those at the top of society uh, where people who are the vast majority working class people working people however you describe them their anger is redirected often against their neighbors rather than the powerful people at the top of society the bankers the the bosses the the tax dodgers uh, against immigrants or unemployed people benefit claimants so you're saying the sort of politics of the way in classes play that class is being played out is this sort of the super elite and everyone else mm -hmm. And also the way in which everyone else is pitted against each other. In yeah, exactly. Because if you if we think about the working class, it's, if we talk about working class Britain like anywhere else, it's not homogenous. It's full of internal divisions. It always has been. So working class Britain has always been full of lot. You know, it, it describes uh, lots of complex. Uh, situations which are quite different and what the right have always done to overcome class solidarity because in theory you know what the left traditionally felt was if all people have the right to vote if all working class people can vote then we'll inevitably build a country that will move on from the form of capitalism we have that we will get some form of socialism because if you vote according to your class interest then you will always vote for a party that wishes to emancipate you and wishes to uh, represent your interests socially and economically. That, that hasn't, hasn't really happened, right? I mean, because of those I, internal divisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the um, I agree with all of that, and I think that the image that we have of uh, class today is really retrograde. And I would take a personal example um, to explain that. So, me and my brother, I think, is always a really good example of like the dysfunctional way that we look at class. So, my brother is a joiner, so he's a carpenter, and he lives in North Wales. You know, he drives a white van, he reads the Mirror, you know, he like watches Andex Saturday Night Takeaway. And I like live in London, I write for The Guardian, I like have been a member of the Barbican, et cetera, et cetera. So like- Fun Christmas dinners. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and like when, when people talk about class, I'm like middle class and my brother is working class. But actually my brother um, has more inco higher income than I do and he owns his own house. Whereas I- don't ever envisage a time when I'll be able to own my own house and I definitely earn less than him. And there's a reason for that. It's because of geography is one of the reasons I live in London. He lives in North Wales. And um, I work in the what I think I suppose is the creative industries, which has always been very precarious. But actually, me and my brother have a lot in common, really, because we're both we both have to sell our labour to survive. Neither of us have sick pay or holiday pay or that kind of thing. You know, we both work long hours, and so really, you know, we're divided by our cultural capital, and that's the bit that people focus on a lot when they talk about class. But we're united by our economic interests, and I think there needs to be we need to forge a new way of talking about class that groups people like me and my brother together because actually we have much more in common in terms of our class than we have dividing us. And I feel like at the moment there's not really any way of talking about that. 
So I would agree with that, and I think there's I think there's definitely some truth to that. But there's something about class hierarchy, right? That is about sort of who has more power. So in that scenario, you're right. Your brother has more income than you, but in the in the world around us, and who gets a say? Can the solidarity be built across those lines, given that a lot of people that do those jobs, even if they have more money, just feel like they're the forgotten group? Yeah, I think you're right there that like, you know, I don't feel I I feel I have an exceptionally high amount of cultural capital as well, because I have a national platform, which like about a thousand people do in Britain. So I'm really exceptional in that regard. And I definitely don't feel as though I'm ignored in the media. I feel as though the media, that whole infrastructure is catered for people like me, really. And people like my brother are ignored. And that is a form of, I would call that soft power. As as the group that does have more of a voice and more representation in the media, I think it's down to us to try and find those common bonds with other working class people. That would be the way that I would try and resolve mm. that. And I mean, the point with the book as well, the Chaz, the demonization of the working class was what I was arguing against is this idea that everyone was middle class now. And actually, it's odd when I wrote it because politics has moved on dramatically. Well, what we were trying to work out, was it seven years ago? So yeah, it came out in 2011, so si- just over six years ago. But w- w- uh, the, the whole point of that book was on uh, to argue against this view, which was very dominant in the media and in the Labour Party, the leadership certainly, that everyone was now middle class. The working class had ceased to exist. And all that was left was this residualised um you know rump. exactly a rump um who, the underclass yeah. exactly who were defined by the lump and proletariat exactly and they were seen as that was all that was left of the working class and everyone else was aspirational therefore middle class and it was all based on this idea of society which justifies equality inequality sorry but, you know because demonization is the backbone of inequality because you you ha- if you have such grotesque inequality it's very difficult to justify it that people are born in completely opposite environments and situations in very wealthy countries. So you have to find ways of justifying it. Those at the top are there because they they work hard, they're better, they're more intelligent. Those at the bottom are feckless and stupid and thick and bigoted and, and, and lack aspiration and all the rest of it. But my, my point is, it should be inclusive because what we should be doing, you know, take the junior doctors. Junior doctors going on strike. Now, junior doctors, you could argue, are relatively far better paid than most in, in, in Britain. Uh, they, they obviously all go to university, many of them from quite well-off privileged backgrounds, many from private schools for that matter. They are people who sell their labour and they are workers who we all depend on. And I think the problem I have with the kind of, uh, the way we look at middle class versus working class in this society is it's often culturally defined, i.e. it's about cultural tastes and pursuits. Do you listen to Radio 4 or Radio 1? Do you read a broadsheet or do you read... Uh, yeah, but there is something in that though, isn't there? I mean, it... To, I, I get what you're saying about the connection, but isn't there? So is there something specific? Because what I thought you're, you know, in the Chavs demonization of the working class, there's there's the middle class, and they may be experiencing some of the mm. precariety of, you know, that other groups are, but they aren't being demonized. No, but when I talk about demonization, it is literally the erasure of working class slash working people in favour of a caricature which is not representative and it is all part of divide and rule. What I am interested in, if you're interested in building a society which is based on meeting people's needs and aspirations rather than profit for a tiny elite of people, then you have to build unity and that means of course there is a big gap between a, I don't know, a hospital cleaner from an immigrant background who lives in a council house 
and a teacher from a middle class background who went to university, who's white um, and male, for example, compared to a, you know, and there are and those differences do have to be because you can't understand class without race, gender, or sexuality. And if you are a black hospital cleaner, then you're, the difference, the gap in your experience between a white man who's from a middle class background and a teacher, there are very clear differences, and that has to be taken into account. So the basis of solidarity is you accept. Within the working class, there are differences in experiences and oppression and, and discrimination and prejudice, and they are systemic in their nature, both within society and within working class communities. And you find commonalities from housing to jobs to the economy to public services, that there is a basis for uniting to overcome those shared problems, whether you identify as working class or middle class. I agree with that, but I do hear what you're saying as well, because um, I came from like a very working class community and my dad's what I would call a working class intellectual and so he came from an even more working class community than me and I think that both me and my dad have experienced this kind of existential dislocation where you don't really fit in either class. Working class communities I found can be quite hostile towards intellectualism and you know I remember at school I was kind of quite bookish and used to read Shakespeare and I used to be sort of regarded with suspicion by my classmates and it's not because you know, they're not, they weren't picking on me because they had more power. It's because things that are considered to be elite cultural interests are used to segregate people by class. You know, they're used to say to working class people, you're too stupid to read Shakespeare or to go watch Harold Pinter or to appreciate Rachmaninoff or whatever. So therefore, you're not intelligent enough to be able to make decisions about your own future. So you need to leave it to us. Um, the elite, we speak in this different language, we have different cultural interests, uh, sort of higher than yours, mm. better than yours. Leave it to us and we'll kind of sort stuff out. And I think intellectualism has historically been used as a way of excluding working class people from positions of power. And I think that the cultural capital thing, the thing about if you say, um, and my cousin said to me, do you, like, do you listen to classical music? And I was like, no, I have to say I don't. And she completely judged me on a cl- like on a on a class basis because it was like but you're he- not with that's those things are are real and I I completely agree with you about like building the solidarity amongst groups about you know where the where there is clear similarities and in, in work yeah, but the cultural, the, the cultural stuff is important. There's cultural codes. There's something that someone spoke about in another interview we had, which was really important. And so what he found was that actually there's certain class codes. I mean that even if you've got the same qualifications and you work in the same place class still acts as a barrier yeah it's very insidious in fact alan milburn who is the social mobility star for labor once said that working class kids should go to the theater so that they can fake their way into the middle class now i've always been like because i was raised by my dad who's always been working class intellectual I've raised by both parents but my dad was like thought it was his like responsibility to sort of kind of socialize me <laughs> intellectually Politically educate you. yeah um I've always I've sort of grown up with the kind of cultural tastes of like a 60 year old man and like I so I find it very easy to like be in these like elite circles and be able to have conversations with like old posh men about things Mm. and um and that that has kind of paid off I mean it's frustrating when you go home and you're like well I'm still skint it's kind of annoying but but like it definitely does make a difference and I you know I sort of think about people that I grew up with who like are hostile and angry and almost upset when they're in those environments and it's because they feel stupid just by being in contact with those things and I think like that is an issue and I think for me like one way that 
that can be overcome and it's important that it's over, overcome is through like reviving the I, the tradition of working class intellectualism. Like, I don't want to bring up the S word, but like this was one of the big kind of aims of the uh, Soviet Union when it first sort of was founded in 1917. Like immediately after that, the education of the proletariat was this huge mission. It's part of it about leadership, though, because one of the things is that we haven't really had you know, a sort of political leadership, like who really stands up for the working class or who really is is bringing together those groups until, you know, maybe you, maybe you want to make the argument that Corbyn's doing that now, but where do you see that coming from now? And, you know, Theresa May tried to say that she stood for the working class. And uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Even just hearing Theresa May makes me laugh, let alone that sentence. <laughs> but anyway, so, you know, but we did hear that a lot, right? And we might laugh at that, well, but some people didn't laugh at that. Some people did see the Conservatives as somewhere they could vote. But actually, this time around in the election, there was a split in the working classes. And like, you know, for, for the first time, they didn't in, in the majority vote Labour. They were split. Well, on that, I think that's a really interesting point about, because, I mean, I hate people who go, oh, I wrote about this years ago and now I've been vindicated. No, but it, what and I... And yet. <laughs> and yet, that's what I'm now going to do. No, what I wrote about in Chaz was there was a danger that because New Labour had abandoned class as a concept and you know, or middle class and all the rest of it, that a savvy populist right would go, actually, no, the working class does exist, the working class is demonised and they're done down by, and they're done down by a liberal middle-class elite of do-gooders who uh, are trying to destroy the lives and communities of working-class people with immigration and multiculturalism. And that is what happened with UKIP. But then Theresa May tried to appropriate that as well in her Conservative Party. And it worked really well, right? Well, well, that's what I was going to come on to, because I think that's a bit more nuanced, that that point. Because she did say that in, in, you know, uh, someone who says the citizen of the world is a citizen of nowhere. And she talks about what's fascinating about this is David Cameron was very, cl- was very, not clever, he wasn't clever. No, he was in his own way, just a disastrous prime minister on his own terms and everyone else's. But um, it, what he, he always talked about hardworking families doing the right thing. Theresa May talked about the working class and that was heresy because uh, Margaret Thatcher said class is a communist concept that sets people into bundles and puts them against each other. In the Tories in the late 70s, when she was in, became leader, they said the problem in Britain isn't the existence of class, it's the existence of class feeling. And their view was collective identity was was a mortal threat yeah. to their didn't projects. Norman Tebbit once said about the miners' strike, we didn't just break the strike, we broke the spell. And the oh, idea the of the yeah. spell yeah, was, yeah. This, was solidarity and community. It was a sense of a collective identity, and that is always innately potentially a fatal idea to their whole projects, which was you you break down all sense of collective identity in, and you promote the idea with all individuals who look after their own self-interest and that helps uh, justify an unequal society. But in this election, although she did do that, what I think is fascinating is it's portrayed as being this young middle-class phenomenon, but actually the group in society that was most supportive of Labour in this general election were young working class people. So those who classed as DE who were regarded as semi-skilled or unskilled or unemployed people, but they're regarded as the most working class of every chunk of society. But 70% of 18 to 24-year-olds in that category voted for Labour compared to about 18% for the Conservatives. For middle-class young professionals, it was just over half voted for Labour. In 1983, the Tories had a nine-point lead amongst 18 to 24-year-olds. So that what you said then earlier on about making that connection between the middle class and the working class, is that maybe that's happening for young people? Could you could you read the results It that is. Way? Overwhelmingly, that's the case. Overwhelmingly, young people, middle class or working class, are voting for Labour. 
Labour's big challenge now is, you know... But look, is that about age, though? Couldn't that simply be more about age than it is about class? We look at this age-slash-class issue, like, completely wrong. I think that, actually, the class is still the defining factor. But nowadays, if you're young, you're more likely to be working class. Because what neoliberalism has done is it's created the collapse of the middle class over the last 30 years. So now you have a very small moneyed elite and a sprawling kind of precariat. I think the root cause is still neoliberalism because it's chipped away at all of the social institutions that enabled people there to be like a kind of more of a tiered class system. And it's just created this big sprawling working class. So obviously the younger you are, the more likely you are to be working class because it means you don't get housing, you're not probably not going to have a paid job, you know, um, what you are going to Even if you've got cultural capital so you might have cultural capital right so one of the things in the British yeah. car survey set found is that those people might be going cinema listening to lots of different types of music and um but actually well, classic, their income levels a so. classic example that Ellie's talking about I think is university lecturers that would regarded I think traditionally is probably the most middle class professional job there is mm. but obviously you've had the expansion of university education but critically particularly in newer universities, university lectures are defined by rampant casualization. That means people with no defined hours in their contracts, lacking basic rights, pensions, you name it, who don't know how much work they're getting from week after week. They're overwhelmingly people who are private renters. So a university lecturer 30 years ago would have been very well off compared to the rest of the population. But critically, and I think this is where class, we lack, we don't talk about this enough, about there's too much focus on income, it's about security often. I mean, couldn't you say, though, that that's about a classless society in a way that people are going to start connecting on these issues of insecurity and voting that way, regardless of class? Like you said, Ellie, there that um, you think class is still a defining factor. Why do you think it's still a defining factor? Or do you think some of the signs are that class is becoming... I think class is still a defining factor because, um, you know, I think that the argument that we've seen about this election is that, oh, for some magical reason, young people are just more left wing. When actually I think it's like they're left wing because of their class experiences, right? But isn't it true that you're more lefty when you're younger and you get more... No, because that's the statistic, 983 compared to now. There's an, right. uh, yeah, Labour I, never I think you, I think you become more conservative as you're older because you get more things that you yeah, need to conserve. Yeah, yeah. So you have like a house, a car, kids, whatever. But people who are like under the age of like 35 now, depending on where they are, that kind of figure moves about a bit, they don't have houses. They they worry that they'll ever be able to afford kids. They don't have pensions. They don't, you can't really be conservative if you don't have anything to conserve. You can't really believe in capitalism if you don't have any capital. Do you know what I mean? So like, it's not as though so I don't... So it's almost as if the economic system... Because it's gone so tipped into this yeah, world it's where producing so many, it's rebels, producing essentially. rebels and it's helping to build a new type yeah. of class consciousness, mm-hmm. which is more But all I say is there's no, united there's no precedent for such a, a, a generational gap. There's no question about that. Mm. So in 1979, when Thatcher won her first victory, the Tories had a one point lead. A few years later, they had a nine point lead. Even in 1987, Labour only had a one-point lead amongst 18 to 24-year-olds. And that's what should worry Tories, is that the first party you ever vote for, you're more likely to vote for for the rest of your life. So even if two people do become more conservative, Labour have such an astronomical lead in that group, that is obviously worrying for them. And the other thing is, amongst 35 to 44-year-olds... Labour have a, had in the last election a 20-point lead. And as someone's pointed out, these are people often disproportionately with mortgages, with kids, kids yeah. midpoint through their career. If you strip out older people, and I don't like, I don't do this on a generational warfare basis, then Labour had a very, very big lead amongst working class people in Britain. The problem they have is amongst people over 65 in particular, 
where the Tories still have a very, very big lead indeed. Many of those people are classed as working class, obviously not in work. Um, but if you, if, if the, you know, Labour still had a big lead amongst people who are DE, those are semi-skilled and skilled workers of all ages. Labour increased sizably the share of the vote amongst working class voters. The argument people are making is that the Tories also were lots of working class people because UKIP's vote collapsed to them and those were older working class people, often retired, who voted for Conservative this time. So all I'm saying is it's more nuanced than people are portraying. Amongst working age Britons, working class people in Britain voted for the Labour Party in this election. Okay, so moving forward, and obviously, like you said, uh, Labour seems to have this issue amongst the kind of at least the older working class. How should we be talking about class or how should politicians be talking about class? What's the best way into this? Given that it's so complex, we've just had this conversation. There's a million different angles we could go off on. I mean, where where do they go? Where do they take it? I have two thoughts on that. The first is that I think Thomas Piketty, the economist, had it right. That the divide in society now is is not between people on low and high incomes or people who like go to the theatre and people who like watch X Factor. It's between people who inherit wealth and people who don't. That's like the divide. The divide now is is between people mm. who have wealth and people who don't. And guys standing... Is that the 1%, 99%? Is it some of that stuff? That yeah, but it's, yeah, but it's very specifically about... Not about people who earn lots. It's about people who own lots. Mm -hmm. And Guy Standing said the same thing. He's an economist as well. And he said that we're living in a society now where more wealth goes to landlords than to workers. And so what that means is that you have this kind of ever remote elite group of people who are just passing their wealth down through the generations who do nothing to earn their place and you know are just sort of secure in this kind of wealthy bubble now to me like that is what we need to talk about that, that that's like to me the defining issue about inequality that and I think we're doing the whole debate a disservice if we don't talk about Ownership. So when politicians are talking about, so in the obviously in the last election, Jeremy Corbyn's big thing was like for the many, not the few. There was more of a focus on income and income taxes. You would move more to look at wealth. Yeah, and it's hard. I, I guess it's. I get that it's very hard to do politically. Like you know, David Cameron always had this rule that you never touch people people's hate inheritance houses. tax. Do that. Yeah, you, I mean, yeah, and the dementia tax thing. Even though we know that was more than about sort of. Yeah, um, it, and it's it, very, it was very unfair as well as. Yeah, but can it be right, though, that, like, just by the, the lottery of being born into a family that owns a lot of property, you have guaranteed security, whereas if you're not, which the majority of people aren't, then you're probably going to live a precarious life indefinitely. And politically speaking, it's also unsustainable. So I think that's my first thought. My second thought is there aren't enough working class voices in politics and in the media. And obviously in poli politics, you've got great MPs like Angela Rayner coming up now, who is working class. And then you've got, you know, in, in journalism, you've got like very, very few working class journalists. In, in fact, it's getting more privately educated, not less. I know, I saw those and there are, And the roots, and I speak from personal experience here, and oh, it does too, the roots through which you get into journalism are very, very narrow, and they usually involve private education, followed by Oxbridge, followed by a course at City University. And if you don't go through that route, it's a bit like being in Gosford Park, some of the kind of freelancers scraping by below doors while the kind of moneyed columnists at the top. And that's what it's like. And so the media and politics urgently needs to change. In terms of the narrative of class, you know, what is it that we should be saying... 
now. I think Labour's position in the election was was very sound on this for the many, not the few, because, and look, their argument was that 95% of people should have their taxes frozen, top 5% should pay more. Now, in the 95% of the people, you would regard probably as middle class, um, because the top 5% are people in £80,000 or more. What I found astonishing, well, not astonishing, it's predictable really, but Labour was trolled after the election because the left is traditionally accused of being unable to win over middle-class voters. Now Labour, since the election, is being accused of winning over too many middle-class voters. But it should be welcome, because it's a winning coalition, that's how we're going to change society, that you can be on the left and offer a radical left-wing prospectus that can unite people who are defined as being working-class and middle class. And they do have shared experiences, many of them, from workers' rights to pensions to wages to public services to university tuition fees. You can We can go on. We can have a programme which says we should increase taxes on those who are most well-off, on major corporations, we'll abolish tuition fees, we'll bring utilities back under public ownership, we'll give workers' rights and security, we'll build the housing this country needs, including council housing, and we will win working-class and middle-class people over to that vision. So, so I that think that's right, that's, that's a great list of policies that would help working class but that doesn't that's not necessarily a way in which you talk about class specifically do you think do you think actually what would happen if we just politicians didn't necessarily talk about class but they just spoke about policy i mean is that the way forward for the many not the few is class politics by definition and class politics you don't we don't have to say talk about the liberation of the proletariat and and all the rest of it i'd quite like to then i know you would you've already already, (laughs) you're the first to use you're the one who cracked open the proletariat game in this podcast i dropped the p-bomb the p-bomb yeah i mean you don't like you don't to talk about class politics you don't have to talk about in this very kind of 19th century russian marxist or german marxist where there are ways of communicating class politics which resonate with people and i think the point about class politics is this there are groups in societies that don't just have different interests they have conflicting interests and you know when people say oh you're pitting people against each other no that's what i couldn't that's what our society does already our society is divisive it pits people against each other it pits their interests against each other economically socially and also we could go on with gender and race and all the rest of it and and, and that's the thing the whole point of class politics is not to entrench class division or any other form of division, is to overcome and abolish them. There should be no class distinction in Britain. And the whole point is to overcome every form of division, every form of distinction to build a society where we don't have that form of inequality. I feel like we could carry on talking about this for ages, um, but we're coming to the end of our time. Do you, I mean, are we feeling all positive about this? Do we feel like we're on the right road and we're we're, going to sort this out? I feel like we're on the right road, but I also feel very conscious there's like a lot of work to do. Yeah, we can't relax yet. Yeah. <laughs> Owen? Well, they call it a struggle, not a walkover. And the only way we get change isn't the goodwill and generosity of the powerful. It's people organising from below. We've got a very long way to go. It's going to be hard. And vested interests, those who benefit from a society rigged in their favour, are going to fight extraordinarily hard to defend their privilege and their power. So we've got class, we're going to, so class is going to stick around for a little bit longer. Well, we'll, we will defeat them. And I think at the moment they fear they will be defeated, but it's going to be difficult. We've all got to do our bit. Everything will be fine in the end. (laughs) Thank you both for that. I feel like I have about 30 more questions, but it's fine. We'll we'll leave it there and we can continue over a drink sometime. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you. Thanks. 
Ellie and Owen have taken us through the class politics of today, reminding us that class is changing. It's not always about money or simply if you go to the opera. Today, class is complex and is affected by age, where you live and security of work. In fact, ideas about cultural differences can be just pure snobbery and a way to make others feel inferior. They believe that politicians must find ways to unite the working and middle classes around common economic interests. At a time when so many of us can no longer afford to buy a house or can find a secure job, this does make a lot of sense. On the flip side, we can't ignore the differences in power, who is seen and listened to, and indeed how the working class are demonized. The impacts of class discrimination and prejudice were demonstrated by the treatment of Grenfell Tower residents. So class politics today is perhaps less about revolution and more about offering the right policies, building a system that listens regardless of class. So we're nearly at the end of this mini-series, what's left to say? From my point of view, the conversations I've had about class show that the issue is far from simple. But although it may be difficult, we can't afford not to have these difficult conversations. Our class system is fundamental to understanding our current social fault lines and political dynamics. And we're not going to work out a way forward without acknowledging our class system. The toxic divide and rule narrative that has pitted the white working class against the ethnic working class is perhaps the most concerning aspect of today's class narrative. We've already seen how this anger can be manipulated and how it has erupted into violence and racism, both here and in the US. The working class have also been pitted against the so-called metropolitan liberal elite. But this group aren't the 1% who hold all the wealth and power, rather portrayed as a migrant-loving London dweller, out to impose multiculturalism on everyone else. Owen Jones is right. By not talking about class, we've left a void that has been filled with xenophobic and racist hate. So what should we do? We need more, not less, class consciousness to counteract the dominance of the elite and the ability to divide and distract. Dawn Foster, Owen Jones and Will Sullivan have all pointed out during this series that without building solidarity among the working classes and finding ways to organise so that people themselves can fight for change, we can't move forward. In some cases, this is already happening through the trade union movement, for example. But we need more. I've been pretty dismayed about the class antagonisms we've seen over the past couple of years. But more and more of us are waking up to the fact that our class system is resulting in more inequality and prejudice, and that it's been used against us. We're being forced to confront it. And that, at least, is the first step towards change. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the series, please tell your friends and leave us a review in the Apple Podcasts app. I've been Faiza Shaheen. This podcast was produced by Hugh Jordan and James Shields and brought to you by the Centre for Labour and Social Studies, CLASS.